Welcome to episode two, season two of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and I'm delighted today to be joined by a very special guest, Congressman Andy Barr, who represents Kentucky's 6th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. The 6th Congressional District has a special place in my heart as it encompasses my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, where the congressman and I went to high school. If you had told me back then that one day we would have titles like commissioner and congressman, uh, I'm not certain I would have believed you, certainly about the commissioner part, maybe the congressman. Uh, But here we are uh, nearly three decades later, and uh, it's just such an honor to have my good friend with us here today. Thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Neil, it is great to be with you, and I can't believe it's been that long since we attended Henry Clay High School together. Those were good times, and uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast, and uh, thank you for your your service at FERC and with Leader McConnell and and your expertise in energy policy in this country. You're a true patriot, and um, uh, going back to our high school days, go Henry Clay Blue Devils. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, um, the Plugged In Podcast is an energy-focused podcast. You are obviously from an uh, energy-centric state. Uh, the Commonwealth of Kentucky is uh, energy, a very critical energy state. Uh, but you're a prominent member of the House Financial Services Committee. And I think what's interesting is as the policy debate around climate change and energy and carbon mitigation uh, really starts to drift into all levels of government, we're seeing more and more activity in the financial arena around climate change. Uh, we've got pretty contentious fights taking place right now uh, at the Fed and the direction the Fed may go. We've got actions that the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference, but the Securities and Exchange Commission may take in this regard. I know you've been active uh, with banks and financial institutions and their obligations. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you're seeing from your purview at financial services and, uh, and, and the role uh, that it's taking on in climate change? Sure. These are, <clears throat> these are very, very important uh, policy issues for our country, for, for, for the economy, uh, for energy security, uh, for environmental policy. And, um, you know, I, I come from uh, the camp that believes that free enterprise is the American way to solve problems, including climate change. Uh, I do not believe that central planning or adding thousands of pages uh, to the Federal Register will change the weather. Uh, and this is the central debate uh, in Washington. What is the best way to tackle climate change without compromising our energy security, our geopolitical uh, leadership uh, in the world, our competitiveness? our access to affordable energy. Uh, I believe it's through free enterprise and innovation. I believe it's through science and technology. I do not believe it is through central planning or giving the government more power to ration energy. What we saw in the Obama era, Neil, was a frontal attack against the coal industry, the fossil energy industry, through uh, federal agencies like the EPA, like the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, Today, it's a little different. Today, I think um, Democrats and those in the Biden administration recognize that the American people won't tolerate those kinds of big government solutions that are uh, so transparently uh, attacking their access to affordable, reliable energy. And so they're 
they're attempting to pass a Green New Deal, not through the Congress, uh, because they know even with a Democrat majority in both the, the House and the Senate, the American people simply will not tolerate uh, such a radical environmental policy. But instead, uh, they want to use financial regulation. They want to they want to weaponize uh, financial regulation as a way of implementing their agenda. And so that's why you see the Biden administration so actively at the Department of Treasury, uh, at the uh, prudential bank regulator level, uh, at the Securities and Exchange Commission, at the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council, the super financial regulator at the Fed, all of these agencies weaponized uh, to ration um, um, energy in this country to um, to uh, pick winners and losers in the credit markets. And uh, this is this is the focus of, of my oversight. This is really, really interesting. So, you know, the <clears throat> entire Biden administration went to Scotland for the COP and announced to the world that the U.S. is back when it comes to climate leadership. Yet they really don't have anything to show for it. Uh, the Build Back Better agenda is completely stalled out. Uh, the Supreme Court is getting ready to, to make a decision on a case that could severely curtail EPA's ability to uh, to curb greenhouse gas emissions. So the conventional ways in which climate change has played out in the regulatory and legislative arena, you know, they're, they're, you're not seeing many results there. And so the shift now is to these other agencies. So it's my understanding that, you know, federal banking agencies have long required lenders to take into account like the possibility of severe weather events in investment decisions. But have the words climate change ever been mentioned in these regulations before? No, and here's the here's the bottom line with with all of this. As as the the fight on climate change shifts from the, the the other federal agencies to the financial regulatory agencies, it's important for us to understand what the actual role of bank regulation is and should be. In my, in my view, Neil, the job of bank regulators is to ensure the safety and soundness of financial institutions and promote financial stability. It is not to pick winners and losers in the credit markets. It is not to politicize the allocation of capital or solve climate change. Nowhere in the statutory authority or mission of these agencies is it to address or or deal with climate change. And what I would say here is that the central irony of of the Biden administration's climate finance agenda is that it will neither promote financial stability nor help the environment. Uh, on the contrary, I believe it'll actually destabilize the economy. And think about it. it, it this is really not hard to figure out. Uh, if we drive up energy costs through overregulation, if we severely reduce the reliability of our electric power grid, do you really believe that that in some way enhances financial stability? Uh, on the contrary, uh, these kinds of policies that, that drive up the costs of electricity, that drive up the costs of energy, that ration energy, that, re- that reduce the reliability of our electric power grid. These are the kinds of policies that undermine our economy, uh, that compromise financial stability. And so uh, I think they fail on that, on that front. Um, on, on the other front, on the front of environmental stewardship, I believe that this agenda will compromise efforts to combat climate change. Think about this. If we starve innovative energy companies of the capital that they actually need, to develop new technologies, new processes to capture carbon, um, uh, innovations to harness the carbon cycle and reduce emissions, 
then we're actually cutting off our nose to spite our face. Um, I believe that the free enterprise system, that capitalism, that the free flow of capital to some of the most innovative American companies with the most amazing intellectual capital, the scientists, the innovators, the engineers, the, 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 the people who invent new technologies, they need capital more than anyone else if we are truly committed uh, to leading the world in the fight against climate change. So I, I think this is the irony of the, the Biden climate finance agenda. And, and I will say one other thing, Neil, Biden's regulators, people like uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, um, uh, people at the Fed who say they want, uh, to, uh, like uh, uh, Governor Lael Brainerd, um, people at, at the OCC and uh, uh, Gary Gensler at the Securities and Exchange Commission, those regulators say they, they want to assess how climate change may create risks to financial institutions or in our financial system. But let's be honest here. President Biden has pledged a whole of government approach to ending support for fossil fuels. And that is not the job of financial regulators. That may be the job of the EPA, it may be the job for Congress, it may be the job of the Department of Energy, but that is not the job of the Fed, that is not the job of Treasury, that is not the job of the SFDIC or the OCC or the Securities and Exchange Commission. So look, this is really not about assessing risk, risks to the financial system, that's just window dressing, that's just empty, hollow rhetoric from um, these uh, Biden regulators. What this is really about is redirecting capital away from fossil energy and weaponizing regulations to discriminate against an entire sector of our economy against reliable, affordable fossil energy. Yeah, so, so for folks like myself and some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with these financial institutions and their regulations, so does this basically boil down to a argument over whether banks themselves are capable of assessing their own risks or now regulators are, are driving them to factor in risks that they should be able to determine on their own? And I guess, how would this work in, in practicality? What is being envisioned? Uh, are they going to prevent financial institutions from investing in fossil fuels? Uh, you know, we hear a lot about ESG. You know, can you kind of explain just in simple terms what that all entails? And I keep hearing about uh, a practice known as redlining. I, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, can you just kind of, for our, our listeners, break down practically what, this, what these potential regulatory moves could mean? Great question, and a lot of questions in there. So let's unpack it one at a time. Let's first talk about what the regulators and what the Biden administration is proposing with banks, um, and then let's move to ESG. So uh, first, on the, on the bank regulation front, um, whether it is FSOC, the, the super regulator, the multi-agency uh, financial stability oversight council that was created by Dodd-Frank, whether it's Treasury itself, or whether it's the OCC, the FDIC, the prudential bank regulators, and the Federal Reserve. What is being proposed is exactly that, redlining, which has long been a prohibited practice in banking. It usually is um, a term that relates to the idea that banks cannot discriminate against um, racial minority groups and redline certain neighborhoods out of their, uh, their provision of, of credit uh, and their, their lending practices. Uh, but that's exactly what these regulators are now proposing with respect to whole uh, entire legally operating industries like the fossil energy sector. And one way to think about this is it's, it's cancel culture applied to finance. Um, it is regulators who are 
discriminating against certain businesses that they perceive to be politically incorrect or politically unfashionable, maybe too environmentally dirty, whatnot. Um, so I, I would call it cancel culture and finance. And my view is that lending decisions should be dependent on wholly objective risk-based underwriting standards. Lending decisions should not be dependent on whether a business is in, is in conformity with the politically correct standards of the day um, or whether or not uh, a financial regulator perceives them to be um, good on climate uh, or the woke opinions of a select few. That's weaponizing financial regulation. And uh, I don't think uh, lenders should be harassed by their regulators uh, to uh, pick and choose what customers uh, they should uh, provide credit to. And, and, but that is, that is the role. Now, what, what are we doing to push back on this? Uh, we, we saw this coming. And, and so in December of 2020, I led a letter to Chairman Jay Powell and Vice Chair Quarles, uh, the Vice Chair of Supervision at the Fed, raising concerns about injecting climate change scenarios into the, the so-called so supervisory stress tests. And we had nearly 50 of my colleagues on that letter. We warned of the methodological challenges associated with climate stress testing. We suggested that, that, that it could perpetuate this growing trend of banks refusing to do business with certain carbon-heavy industries. And I will say, I was, I was pleased generally with the response from Chairman Powell and Vice Chair Quarles when they said that, you know, climate change is an important issue. Uh, and, and Congress has entrusted the job of directly addressing climate risks to a number of federal agencies, but not including the Federal Reserve. And bank regulators, like the Fed, should be focused on the safety and soundness of financial institutions. Now, now some on the left will say, well, um, we need to look at the transition risk. We need to look at um, uh, um, climate change as an underwriting risk. Um, but frankly, banks and financial firms have been looking at uh, weather risk, uh, insurance companies have been looking at weather risk um, uh, for a long time now. And, and they take into account um, you know, building practices in real estate lending. Uh, they look at uh, underwriting risk with respect to hurricanes and uh, tornadoes and other weather events. That's part of the actuarial analysis and the, uh, un the bank under lending underwriting process today. That's not what's going on here. Um, what's going on here is a, is a whole of government delivered approach to put the, the finger on the scale, of, uh, put the government's finger on the scale uh, to force and, and cajole and, um, uh, and persuade banks to debank and to cut off financing, choke off financing to fossil energy. That is not the role of financial regulators. It's irresponsible. And as I said before, it, it neither promotes financial stability nor actually helps the, the, the goal of combating climate change. Now, you and I have talked before about the uh, big pronouncement that BlackRock made that they were no longer going to finance fossil fuel investments uh, going forward. And, uh, you know, my understanding is, you know, an entity like BlackRock has a fiduciary obligation to its clients who you know, entrust them to manage their money to, to make them the most amount of money possible and that they ought not be picking and choosing, you know, uh, decisions regarding investments based on, uh, you know, larger public policy objectives like carbon mitigation. But Larry Fink put out a letter to CEOs in which he said, no, this, this is smart finance, that fossil fuel investments are riskier long-term investments and that we are actually doing this to make our investors more money. 
What, what, what do you make of Fink's response to some of the criticism he received when BlackRock made that initial announcement? Well, yeah, this gets at the second question of, of so-called environmental social governance. And some will argue that, look, the ESG movement is a private sector movement, that there is, there's investor demand in the market for ESG uh, funds and investments, and the market is actually moving away from fossil energy. Um, I find that hard to believe when uh, oil prices are, are moving up. Energy stocks um, have made shareholders a lot of money in the last 12 years. Um, and, and really what it gets down to is the statutory mission of the SEC, and this is where we're, we're getting away from bank regulation and into um, capital markets regulation. The statutory mission of the, of the SEC is to protect investors, to maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and to facilitate capital formation. Once again, its mission is not to reduce carbon emissions or solve climate change or to pick winners and losers in, in the stock markets. Now, I acknowledge that there is some investor demand, as Larry Fink would argue, in the market for ESG funds. I also, frankly, see some utility uh, for investors in standardization of ESG disclosures to eliminate some of the inconsistencies in the way public companies are rated. There, a lot of times, ESG investors, frankly, think they're investing in something that's like a sustainable, environmentally responsible company, but frankly, they, they don't know what they're investing in. But, but here's, here's what you need to understand. More than 90% of all S&P 500 companies already voluntarily publish ESG information on an annual basis. And uh, I think this move to mandate disclosures by the SEC has the potential to not provide new or material information to investors, but instead inundate investors with voluminous and confusing and non-material information that actually would hurt the very investors that the Democrats and the Biden administration claim that they want to help. We shouldn't be burying shareholders in an avalanche of trivial information, uh, which uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall said would be a result hardly conducive to, an, to informed decision-making. We need to avoid burdening investors with an avalanche of trivial information. We need to avoid weaponizing disclosures to name and shame politically incorrect companies, to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, to discriminate against energy firms that produce jobs and affordable and reliable energy, and by the way, returns to investors. And this is kind of the final point I want to make on ESG. I think this ESG movement is dangerous precisely because of what you, you mentioned, Neil. I think it has the very real potential to compromise investor returns because what is Larry Fink doing when he says we're going we're gonna to divest uh, retail investors' uh, money away from fossil energy? What they're doing is they're elevating non-pecuniary factors above and ahead of financial performance. And, and look, BlackRock and some of these other financial firms, uh, are, uh, they are making a ton of fees uh, for these ESG funds to the detriment of retail investors. These fees for ESG funds are, are 43% higher than non-ESG funds. And the fact of the matter is many low-ranked ESG stocks not only outperform top-ranked ESG stocks, they outperform the market overall. And so we've got we've to gotta make sure we're not harming American savers, uh, American retirees, people who are just trying to save for college in a 529 by subordinating the, the returns that they need and deserve 
to, pr- to promote these non-pecuniary policy objectives like social justice or diversity and inclusion quotas or lower carbon emissions. Um, all of this stuff just is, is, is unrelated to the job of investment managers, investment advisors. Their job is to, as a, as a fiduciary, is to maximize shareholder value, to maximize returns, and then let the individual investor that then has higher yields on his or her portfolio, let them allocate their capital in ways that they want to environmental causes or, or social justice causes or diversity inclusion. But, but, but um, we cannot take the eye off the ball with what the fiduciary obligation is. And we can't say that we're going to go to some kind of more socially responsible capitalism or stakeholder capitalism and expect that this is going to be good for our economy. It's just going to increase compliance costs for public companies it's going to discourage private companies from going public. It's going to encourage public companies to go private. And it's going to result in fewer investment choices for everyday investors. And it's going to, it's going to reduce their returns. And that's why I'm, I'm so skeptical about uh, all of these new uh, ESG disclosure requirements. Uh, I, 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 always, I always like to say, Neil, uh, the, the, the SEC is poised to propose uh, to cut down forests. And, and cut down a lot of trees to add thousands of pages to 10Ks uh, in order to somehow combat cl- climate change. And I think that's ridiculous. Well, November's a ways off, but certainly today, it looks likely that, uh, that the House majority will shift, putting you back in the majority. But Gensler will still be at the SEC. Yellen will still be at Treasury. These other, the head of these financial institutions. What tools uh, are available to you should you guys reclaim the House majority to combat some of this? And have you guys started to think through what your approach may be should you get that opportunity? Well, I think oversight is obviously the tool we need. I mean, we need to have the gavels to hold these regulators accountable. There are some tools like the Congressional Review Act. Uh, We can pass bills. We can try to exercise the power of the purse. It's hard when you don't have a president to sign those bills into law. I'm introducing a bill, for example, uh, on the ESG front that would that would require investment advisors and ERISA plan sponsors uh, to uh, prioritize uh, investor returns uh, uh, and financial performance over and ahead of non-pecuniary factors uh, such as uh, carbon emissions or uh, social justice quotas, things like that, that that really have nothing to do with maximizing shareholder value. Uh, I think um, the investor should be king and they should be able to allocate their capital however they want to. But the default should always be that the fiduciary duty is to maximize investor returns, uh, regardless of these other issues. So I think um, we can introduce those bills to push back. We can exercise oversight uh, to make sure that the Fed, for example, is not straying away from its, its mission. The, the Fed's independence will be compromised when it becomes politicized. The Fed's job is price stability and maximum employment. The Fed's job is financial stability. It is not to combat climate change. It is not to pick winners and losers in the credit markets. It is not to politicize the allocation of capital. Uh, And uh, regrettably, uh, we see some of Biden's nominees to the Federal Reserve uh, want to expand the role of the Fed uh, way beyond its statutory mandate. And we are there in the Congress and in the next Congress in the majority uh, to make sure that the Federal Reserve remains focused on its core mission and does not stray into matters that are 
really reserved uh, uh, to the Congress and, and to regulatory agencies subject to the oversight of Congress. Well, thank you so much for providing your insights to some of these complex financial regulatory issues that uh, those of us energy listeners may not be totally uh, familiar with. And it's been really helpful here on Plugged In. We like to talk substance, uh, but we get into the personal a little bit as well. Uh, knowing you for as long as I have, I know you're very proud of the Carroll Act. Uh, can you briefly just tell our listeners um, what, what the Carroll Act is and uh, where things currently stand with it? Thanks, Neil. Um, well, you know, you had the you had the good fortune, as did I, to get to know Carol Barr, my late wife. Uh, she tragically uh, left us, uh, passed away in June of 2020. It's almost been two years, and we miss her dearly. And what happened to her shouldn't happen to anyone. Twenty five thousand Americans, unfortunately, many young women suffer a sudden cardiac death event like she did. Uh, and we don't want uh, this tragedy to, to uh, impact other families. What we know is 25,000 Americans, including my late wife, uh, suffer a sudden heart attack because of underlying valvular heart problems. She had a mitral valve prolapse. Uh, this only happens in 0.2% of the cases, so the odds were in Carol's favor, but unfortunately she was one of the unlucky ones, uh, and her life was cut way, way too short. She left two beautiful kids, and, and that's her greatest legacy. But we also want to make her legacy the Carroll Act, which, uh, which uh, provides um, a grant program, creates a grant program within the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute uh, to get at the risk factors and to help er- diagnose this condition earlier and also detect uh, whether it's a life-threatening situation or uh, what, it, what it is for the vast majority of cases, and, and it's, it's benign for many, many Americans. Uh, but for the for the few that have a life-threatening condition, we want to get them help ahead of time for surgical intervention or other other treatment that can save lives. And so we passed that bill. We had over 180 co-sponsors, bipartisan in the House. We passed it unanimously in the House. It's in the Senate right now. I've had good conversations with um, many senators about this. Uh, I want to thank Leader Mitch McConnell for being the lead on this in the Senate. And I also want to thank Kirsten Sinema, the lead Democrat on this in the Senate. I had a good conversation with Patty Murray, who is chairman of the, um, of the health committee, the, sub, the, sub, the, the committee with jurisdiction over this. And we're very hopeful that the Carroll Act will pass out of the Senate, go to the president's desk, signed into law. We will save lives with this bill. And of course, we will honor a, a wonderful and great woman, Carol. Yeah, what, what a wonderful legacy uh, that would be. Uh, obviously, your girls are her primary legacy, but uh, it would be great to see that get across the finish line. Again, uh, I'm constantly thinking of you uh, and your family, and it's so great to know that, uh, that you're pursuing this effort to, 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 to really uh, honor her, her legacy. Uh, before we close the Plugged In podcast, um, uh, I note my, my son went to school this morning uh, with a T-shirt that read January, February, Kentucky, April. Uh, we're approaching March Madness. How are you feeling about our cats? You know, I feel generally pretty darn good. Uh, we've got a we've got a team that can go go the go the distance this year. I really believe it. Um, you know, Ty Ty Washington had an injury uh, the other day. Uh, we didn't have a very good performance down in Knoxville. I, I call that a show up game, Neil. Show up game is uh, a game where you know Tennessee showed up, Kentucky did not show up. Uh, that was a, a, a rare. A, a rare night uh, this year where Kentucky didn't show up, but it's a good lesson, a good preparation point for March. You know, we beat Tennessee by 28 and Rupp. They beat us the other night by 13 in 
Thompson Bowling. I can't wait to play them again um, in March. We're going to be better and better. And uh, I like our chances. I like our team. I like our depth. Uh, I think uh, Oscar Schwebe is the best big man in America. Uh, I think um, uh, we've got a real, a real opportunity with some depth and um, we've got good guards. We've got um, uh, real good balance um, and we've got some nice depth. And I, I like our chances to get back to the final four and cut down the net. Cal certainly got his swagger back. I love to see it. Uh, Congressman Andy Barr, thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. But more importantly, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your family. And thank you for your friendship. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Neil, thanks a lot. Great podcast. Uh, thanks for your service as well, for your patriotism, and for your expertise on, on these very, very important topics. And uh, appreciate your friendship, buddy. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.